This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A legislative committee has approved a GOP-drafted redistricting plan, setting up a final vote in the legislature next Monday. But the Republicans' maps face a certain veto from Governor Tony Evers. Earlier today, the Senate's Government Operations Committee voted 3-2 to two along party lines to pass the maps on to the full legislature. Senator Kelda Royce, a Democrat from Madison who sits on the committee, wrote in a press release that, quote, Wisconsin is already the most gerrymandered state in the nation, yet GOP leaders want to engage in an even more blatant power grab, unquote. The GOP's current maps are based largely on the ones drawn in 2011, with secure Republican dominance in the legislature for a decade. Redistricting is an undertaking is undertaken once every 10 years after returns from the U.S. Census. After Governor Evers vetoes the maps, the debate will likely head to the courts. Republicans and Democrats have spent the past several months jockeying for a legal poll position on the issue. Democrats want the maps to land before federal courts, while Republicans want to push the issue to the conservative-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court. The Racine County Sheriff is pushing for charges against five members of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, who who he alleges broke the law when they issued guidance last year barring special voting deputies from nursing homes. The six-person bipartisan commission administers Wisconsin's elections. Now, in a normal year, elections officials would send teams of special voting deputies into nursing homes to help residents vote. Last year, at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the commissioners voted to bar those deputies from nursing homes. Racine County Sheriff Christopher Schmallings originally asked the state's Department of Justice to investigate the issue, but the DOJ refused. Now, the Associated Press reports that Schmalling is pushing the Racine County District Attorney's Office to bring charges against the five elections commissioners. Wisconsin tourism industry is beginning to rebound, according to new data from the United States Travel Association. Per the association's September data, Wisconsin experienced its first growth in monthly year-over-year tourism spending compared with 2019. According to the Associated Press, the state still anticipates that overall tourism spending for 2021 will be down compared to 2019. According to the governor's office, Wisconsin has spent more than $200 million in federal COVID-19 relief aid to help the state's tourism industry through the pandemic. Beginning next month, folks incarcerated in Wisconsin's prisons will receive photocopies of their mail instead of the originals. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the Department of Justice is implementing the policy to stop people from receiving paper letters laced with the synthetic drug K2, commonly known as SPICE. According to the DOJ, there were 182 incidents related to the drug in prisons during September. The policy was implemented at the Fox Lake Correctional Institution on a trial basis, and folks incarcerated there have reported months-long delays in receiving mail and cases where their personal mail has been altered. To address those issues, DOJ officials say that they'll be hiring an outside company to handle the photocopying. 
state regulators have approved plans for a $370 million natural gas storage project, despite concerns over continuing in investments in fossil fuel infrastructure. The project, which will include two facilities in Jefferson and Walworth counties, was approved by Wisconsin's Public Service Commission today. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the projects were opposed by local residents and the Sierra Club. In related news, Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Wisconsin's largest utility company is planning to drop its reliance on coal by 2035. WEC Energy Group, which owns Wheat Energy and Wisconsin Public Service, wants coal to comp comprise wants coal to comprise less than 5% of its power mix by the end of the decade. Ironically, however, We Energies is backing the natural gas storage facility. A juror in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse has been dismissed after making a joke to a police officer about the shooting of Jacob Blake. Blake was shot by a Kenosha police officer last August, kicking off several nights of protests in the southeast Wisconsin city and across the state. It was at those protests in Kenosha that Kyle Rittenhouse killed two and injured a third, for which he now faces multiple felony charges. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, there are now 19 people on the jury. After several months of construction, West Washington Avenue will reopen to through traffic tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. According to city engineer officials, crews will still be on site to finish up some work including installing street signs and signal poles. Their presence shouldn't affect traffic, but will likely reduce street parking along the road. Metro Transit buses will also be returning to West Wash tomorrow. And now for your daily COVID-19 roundup, courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. The rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases currently stands at 1,996. Just north of 55% of Wisconsinites, or more than 3.2 million folks, have completed their vaccination series. That number will likely jump in the next month as vaccine distributors began, begin administering the Pfizer vaccine to children between the ages of 5 and 11. And now on to today's top stories. Earlier today, immigrant rights activists gathered outside the office of Senator Tammy Baldwin in downtown Madison. The action sought to pressure Baldwin and her fellow Democrats into passing meaningful immigration reform. Our producer, Jonah Chester, was on the scene and takes us from here. This afternoon, demonstrators gathered outside the office of Senator Tammy Baldwin to demand action on immigration reform. Numbering a few dozen, they blocked off traffic in a corner of the Capitol Square for more than an hour. They came from across the state as part of a national demonstration dubbed 11 Cities for 11 Million. That would be the 11 million undocumented immigrants who currently live in America. This particular leg of the protest was organized by Voces de la Frontera, a Milwaukee-based immigrant rights group. Federal Democrats are currently hashing out the details of President Joe Biden's $1.75 trillion Build Back Better plan. 
Last week, President Biden announced that the plan would include $100 billion for immigration reform. Exactly what that reform would look like is still up in the air, according to the Washington Post. Federal lawmakers are hashing out exactly what the money will go towards, and there's even division in the Democratic Party itself on what should be included. Luis Velasquez, an organizer with Voces de la Frontera, says Biden's Build Back Better plan may be one of the last opportunities to pass serious immigration reform for the foreseeable future. We find ourselves in a critical point. You know, there is a great, great threat that the immigration provision is not going to be passed. And so we're here today to remind her that the Hispanic and Latinx electorate was so important last year. Latinx and Hispanic folks are a growing demographic in Wisconsin and across the country and will likely be a key voting bloc for Democrats in next year's midterm elections and the 2024 presidential race. According to the 2020 U.S. Census, the Hispanic population in Wisconsin grew by 33 percent over the past 10 years and is now Wisconsin's largest racial minority group. According to the Pew Research Center, President Biden's job approval rating among Hispanics fell from 72 percent in July to 56 percent in September. Velasquez also has a personal stake in this debate, as he's a DACA recipient. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program was established by President Barack Obama in 2012. And while it protects folks who arrived in the country as children, it doesn't offer them a path to citizenship. Uh, you know, I haven't seen my parents for many years. To have DACA has been of great help. I was able to be able to work, right? However, it's not enough to have some sort of advanced parole. It's just not enough. I have to apply for a permit to leave the country for an emergency. My parents haven't been able to been there for the major milestones of my life. You know, I graduated from college um, and my parents weren't able to be there in my graduation. I was able to go and get my master's degree as well, uh, you know, three years working hard and my parents weren't able to be there as well. I got married a few years ago. They weren't able to be at my wedding. And now uh, my wife, my partner is ex, uh, expecting and she's due in April and they're not going to be able to be there. So this is something that's happening across the country with thousands of family who are immigrants. Jungwoo Kim is the organizing director of Nakasek Action Fund, an organization that advocates for immigrants' rights. Kim is also an undocumented immigrant who's been living in America for 22 years. We're saying citizenship for all. We mean literally everybody. You know, citizenship, we believe it's basic human rights. It's not something that you have citizenship because you're special. Everyone deserves citizenship because, because that's the human rights. Without citizenship, you can't really have basic human rights in this country. You can go to school, you can get health care, you can travel, you can be uh, separated from your loved ones. Carlos Perez was one of those who spoke at today's action. I'm an essential worker and I showed up the entire pandemic to work and I kept things going. And like millions of people like me that are immigrants and essential workers, we showed up and it's their turn to show up for us. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
On Tuesday, a team of divers bought, brought up a 1,200-year-old canoe from the depths of Lake Mendota. The canoe, which belonged to ancestors of the Ho-Chunk Nation, has been released into the care of the Wisconsin Historical Society for Preservation. Now, eventually, according to the state, Wisconsin State Journal, the craft will go on display in a new expanded Historical Society Museum on the Capitol Square. For more on the discovery, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Bill Quackenbush, a tribal historic preservation officer with the Ho-Chunk Nation. So can you tell me about the the role of Wisconsin's waterways to the Ho-Chunk people, and in this case, the ancestors of the Ho-Chunk people, as I believe that is who the canoe that was unearthed or, I guess, uh, pulled up from the lake actually belonged to? Yeah, so um, in regards to waterways, they... um had and still do today play an important role, you know, in traditional culture. Water, of course, they always say is a giver of life, right? It's uh, something that you want to protect and and, uh, make sure that we always have clean drinking water. And the waterways, such as uh, in Madison area, um, the Ho-Chunk referred to them as Dejolt. And Ho-Chunk, that means uh, four lakes. And uh, the lake itself where this canoe was uh, discovered was in um, Lake Mendota. And the Ho-Chunk traditionally had referred to Lake Mendota as Dewankshikhomanikita, meaning he who lies there. And there are stories that talk about the, the steep history of the Ho-Chunk um, in that region and how these lakes were created when the, the last glacier episode was uh, taking place here and, and it, it receding to the north. So the history of the Ho-Chunk in the Madison area today, uh, today goes quite a, quite a few years back. Uh, this canoe, when they talk about it, um, uh, reaching as far back as possibly 800 A.D. or so. In our history, you know, being indigenous to this region, it, it's relatively recent, um, but it's nonetheless just important today for us as a tribe and a culture and people to reassert that, you know, these items that folks find today in the land and in the water, that, you know, that they are attributed to the, the correct individuals. And, and in this region, uh, that would be the Ho-Chunk people. And so waterways, in short, are just one of the many ways of traversing, of course, uh, and the utilization of that was very important and still is. And it's no different than Madison's community today. Those lakes play a very vital role of the Madison community. Yeah, let's zero in a little bit more on the canoe itself. Talk to me about the importance of this discovery, both from a cultural and historical lens. Uh, There's many thoughts involved with the uh, dugout canoe that was found there. Uh, And so it's a tool that, in part, reasserts the the Ho-Chunk connection to this area. And how that is, is that the Ho-Chunk people have always been referred to the people of big voice. Uh, That's what Ho-Chunk, in fact, means when you say that, or people of the sacred language. But they had been referred to by other um, indigenous tribes to the east uh, as the the people of the big waters, meaning that um, there was a group of individuals over on this side of uh, Lake Michigan, for example, that utilized larger crafts than the, you know, the typical uh, Algonquin birch bark canoes and the elm barks. And, and although we utilize them as well, uh, we also use these dugout canoes in this region here because uh, for the larger water bodies of water, they were just more stable. Uh, they didn't get blown around as, as easily as birch bark canoes. And in this area, uh, there was a, a luxury of having those large cottonwoods and white pine 
throughout our region here uh, to utilize to make these dugouts. Um, and they were va a valued tool, you know, and, and something that the Ho-Chunk often times reflect back down in our recent history uh, during the historic periods, they call it from the 1600s all the way up to now, various aspects of using dugouts canoes to assure that we came back to our ancestral areas, for example, during uh, the removals that took place in the 1800s. Um, oftentimes you People wonder how did the Ho-Chunk people come back from all these areas and reservations west of the Mississippi, right, to bring them this way. And they would uh, create these dugout canoes in these places they were relocated to and and, and, and come back down the rivers, uh, the Mississippi and the Missouri, and, and come back into our ancestral areas. So uh, there's a history of these dugouts throughout um, our history as well as during the historic periods for Wisconsin, for example. Now, this canoe, after it was pulled out of the lake, was sort of released into the care of the State Historical Society for preservation and, and making sure it lasts for coming generations to learn about. What role does the Ho-Chunk Nation have in this item going forward? Are you all offering input on how it should be preserved, where its future should be? What does the input from your end look like? Um, well, so from uh, our perspective, uh, from government to government, for example, uh, between a tribal government and a state agency, uh, we oftentimes uh, enjoy working collaboratively with them uh, uh, to protect and preserve our history. And when I say our, it means everyone's history in Wisconsin here, including uh, the Ho-Chunk. And our, our kindred interest in the process is that um, knowledge of our past culture has been whitewashed as well. Uh, the assimilation you know, that had taken place during the historic periods here uh, was very strong. And so um, as a tribal government here, one of our duties and responsibilities and also the assumptions of duties we take on as a sovereign nation is that we assure that uh, our Ho-Chunk community, our, our youth and our families and our people here um, receive accurate information so that they, they can continue to process with their own communities their uh, accurate knowledge about themselves. And in the, the historical society is a professional entity and, and uh, the, the care and the protection and preservation of this item here, um, they, they're well equipped to do that. Um, we don't have that process here, so we're anxious to uh, sit alongside them. And, and, and they, they mentioned that I believe it was a two-year process minimum uh, to uh, work with this dugout canoe. So you can see these uh, collaborative efforts or these uh, joint efforts to protect and preserve items of this nature. They're, they're quite long-term. And do you hope eventually after the, the craft is preserved and presented, I believe it's going to be in the Historical Society's new museum on the Capitol Square. At some point in the future, do you hope it gets released to the tribe itself? Uh, well, so yeah, so where it is found, the public uh, properties and, the, and then staying in the, the use for the public, we're totally satisfied with the process there, and, and but in hopes that uh, in the future we have the opportunity to share uh, and take care of it as, on a loan, for example, to bring it maybe into our tribal communities, you know, at times there to show them this item. I mean, they are rare, and uh, once found in, in as tact as this one here uh, offers a lot for educational opportunities. So, Mr. Quackenbush, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Before I let you go, is there anything else, any parting thoughts you'd like to add about this discovery? Anything you'd like folks to know that we haven't had a chance to touch on here today? Nothing that comes to mind now, um, as mentioned, you know, it is going to be a, a, um, 
a, a process that's going to be unfold and unfolded through the, the next several months will be very intense. And then uh, for the next two and perhaps three years, you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, how we develop uh, not only at the state agencies, but also with the tribe here, you know, learning tools and the ability for us to uh, share, you know, content and information that they garner from this. But I also want to thank you for giving me a call here. It's busy times here in the fall. So, and I know how busy you folks are too. Well, Mr. Quackenbush, thank you so much for taking a minute out of your day to chat with me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. You guys take care. Bill Quackenbush is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Ho-Chunk Nation. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've had lots more stories coming up. We'll examine some sunken ships in Lake Michigan. And Radio Chipstone discusses the artistry of lace. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. On the surface, you wouldn't think that Wisconsin, a largely landlocked state in the Midwest, would be a great place for discovering and researching sunken ships. But as we learned in the front half of our show, Wisconsin's waterways contain many well-preserved mysteries. Back in June, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA for short, designated a nearly 1,000 mile, square mile area in Lake Michigan as a national marine sanctuary. The territory just off the coast of Wisconsin contains dozens of sunken ships. For more on what makes Midwestern waters so uniquely suited to preserving sunken crafts, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Russ Green the Great Lakes Coordinator at NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries earlier this summer, shortly after the agency announced the new sanctuary. So a large chunk of Lake Michigan, about a 962-square-mile area just off the coast of Wisconsin, has been designated as a marine sanctuary. Why is this area historically and environmentally important? Why did it warrant this distinction? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, you know, the marine sanctuary now designated off the mid coast of Wisconsin's Lake Michigan is, you know, it's historically significant for a number of reasons. It is a transportation corridor. I mean, Chicago becomes Chicago because of its proximity to water and all that traffic going to and from Chicago, whether it be bringing settlers in, bringing materials to Chicago to build that city, that's coming by the, the coast of Wisconsin. And so we see a lot of shipwrecks there that are representing that, the growth of the United States, of the Midwest, of expansion. And, you know, that's mid-1800s, late-1800s. And the cool thing about the sanctuary is we can turn the clock back a little bit to the 1830s to really when Wisconsin is a frontier. Uh, we have a couple of small trading schooners that would have kept those small communities along the lakeshore engaged with one another and connected. And then on the other end of the time scale, by 1929, we have a shipwreck called the Senator, which was 400 feet long, a huge steel freighter carrying a couple hundred Nash automobiles. So it's that spectrum of commerce and settlement and industry uh, that's represented in the shipwrecks in the sanctuary. 
a lot of those shipwrecks, despite being nearly two centuries old for some of them, are remarkably well-preserved. What is it about Lake Michigan's aquatic environment that is able to essentially crystallize a lot of those in time? Yeah, we're really fortunate in the Great Lakes. Cold, fresh water. I mean, it, it is uh, a magical preservative for, for shipwrecks. And as you can imagine, many of the early wrecks in all of the Great Lakes, there's as many as 5,000 shipwrecks across all of the Great Lakes, uh, and those early ships are, are wooden. Uh, and the cold, fresh water in the Great Lakes and in Lake Michigan helps preserve those uh, incredibly well. And some of the deeper sites, as you know, if you swim early in the season, Lake Michigan is cold. And when you get deep enough, it really doesn't change temperature that much. So it's always, you know, hovering around 40. And that's really good to preserve a wooden shipwreck. So cold, fresh water keeps these shipwrecks incredibly well preserved, which gives us a huge opportunity, you know, to recognize the history, to preserve those stories, to tell those stories to do the archaeology, and they're also great recreational spots. So how does one conduct archaeological surveys on those structures? What does research into those into those ships look like? Yeah, you know, the research is great. It's obviously, it's the most fascinating part for most of our jobs here at the Sanctuary, but, you know, it's also, it's the beginning of telling the story. And so for us, it can start with something as simple as, as remote sensing, using, say, a sonar, an overgrown fish finder, to go look for these shipwrecks. And in fact, we have a team out there now uh, doing just this. They're from the Office of Coast Survey, another sister NOAA program, and they're here in the sanctuary mapping the sanctuary with sonar to, you know, to look for shipwrecks, to find those other cultural features. But we can also use that information to help natural resource managers, you know, figure out what's going on with habitat, what does the bottom look like, and that has implications for deciding, um, you know, the natural management of the, of, of the lake. It's not something we manage, but it's the way to double dip on the data. So looking for shipwrecks, you can actually get a lot of side benefits. And then when you find one, you know, if you're finding a shipwreck that has never been seen before, it's a time capsule. I mean, it, these shipwrecks are, I often say that it's a, a museum beneath the waves. And it's true, particularly when you find a new one, because it's there with all of its artifacts, its personal effects from the crew, from the passengers, if it was carrying passengers, it's there and it's locked in time. Uh, and so that's exciting. And that begins a whole nother phase of archaeology, which is, you know, putting together that puzzle and understanding that shipwreck from an archaeological perspective. You mentioned a minute ago that as part of the archaeological research, y'all are also able to sort of gather environmental data on this area. So when these when these ships sink, I have to imagine because they're so well preserved, uh, they don't make a, a great a great environment in and of themselves for aquatic flora and fauna. Is that a misread on my part? Because I'd assume if that aquatic wildlife did move in, it would it would destroy the ship pretty quickly. Is that a, is that a good reader? Am I off base on that? No, you know, it, it's an awesome question, and, it, and it's fascinating because in salt water, you know, if you run down and you uh, go scuba dive in the Keys, you may go scuba dive a wreck that was intentionally sunk because it provides habitat. And that does happen in the Great Lakes. I mean, a shipwreck is, um, let's say you have kind of a flat, more featureless area of the lake and a shipwreck. It does provide habitat and protection for, for fish. So you'll see some fish congregate. I mean, fishermen know this. And so it, it does provide a habitat that way. But in terms of, you know, sort of disrupting the environment, I, don't, I think they're, you know, they're pretty benign. Once they settle on the bottom, you know, they're there. They don't move a lot, particularly ones that are deeper. Some of the shallow ones, certainly we see a lot of dynamics there. But, yeah, I don't think they, 
they impinge on the environment. But what they do is they give us sort of this kind of a bellwether in some cases. And one of the, the most curious, I, I think, ways to look at a shipwreck in terms of its relationship to the natural environment is invasive species, and particularly zebra mussels and quagga mussels, which, you know, as you know, have kind of entered the Great Lakes and really turned the ecosystem upside down. But they cluster on hard surfaces. They can cluster even on sand, but we'll see them on shipwrecks. And if you look at the big time scale of when they entered the Great Lakes in the 80s up till now, and you begin to look back at those photographs, you can really see the advance of zebra and later quagga mussels. So they were a bellwether. You know, we didn't recognize it as much as the time I've been working in the Great Lakes and archaeology for about 20 years. And, you know, you look back and you begin to see, you know, they're being encrusted. Zebra mussels were generally shallow. And then all of a sudden you see mussels deeper. Those are quagga mussels. And so if we had been a little bit sharper or had kind of, you know, been more advanced, we could have, you know, really watched this and helped the natural side that, you know, those biologists, you know, kind of monitor that as a way to kind of, you know, measure the, the infestation, the growth, the biomass of these mussels. And in fact, we do that now. We work a lot with folks from the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab in Ann Arbor, that's another no outfit, who study just this. And shipwrecks tend to be a great way to figure out, you know, what's going on with muscle populations. So functionally, what does this designation as a marine sanctuary change? Is it more protections for the ships, uh, limiting existing ship traffic through this corridor? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, it extends and kind of builds upon the state protections that are there. So this is just The greatest thing about this marine sanctuary is that it's managed in partnership with the state of Wisconsin. And the state of Wisconsin, as you may know, you're there in Madison, so you probably know the Wisconsin Historical Society right down there on State Street. Well, they have a marine archaeology program, and uh, that's been around since the late 1980s. So they have done a lot of this work. They've been the stewards through good times and bad as we kind of look at these places and begin to understand the value of culture, the value of heritage. And all along the way, the state has been there looking at these things archaeologically, making those connections to education and onward. So the sanctuary builds on that. There is an added protection with the sanctuary regulations. Uh, There is a no anchoring uh, regulation uh, for sanctuary shipwrecks. And now that'll take place or come into effect two years after the designation of the sanctuary. So we want to give ourselves time to put permanent moorings on each of the shipwrecks so that Uh, This no anchoring regulation really doesn't have an impact on divers. The whole reason for the sanctuary, we think, from the sanctuary program is to promote use of the sanctuary, to get people out there into the sanctuary, diving, paddling, kayaking, snorkeling, and enjoying these places. So although we've got this no anchoring reg, we really want to get mooring buoys out there so that the shipwrecks are protected from anchor damage. That's the purpose of the regulation, but also to spur recreation and folks going out there visiting them. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Russ Green, the Great Lakes Regional Coordinator with the NOAA Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. Uh, Russ, thank you so much for joining me. This was a delightful conversation. You bet. Thank you, Jonah. It's now 6.43 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Maeve Hogan is a Ph.D. student in design history in the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison. Hogan is currently curating the LACE exhibit, currently on display at the Center of Design and Material Culture. 
In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Hogan tells contributor Jennifer Fields that while she did not have a deep knowledge of lace when she first approached curating the exhibit, her love of textiles and history guided her decisions. I have deep knowledge in textiles, and I started like working in textiles as a very small child, um, and then I kind of moved, because I had material knowledge from making, I moved into textile history because I had an idea about how construction worked. Um, and like, so my background in textiles in general let me have a broad knowledge of the field, which gave me access to this information and, and helped me like choose things because of what I thought might be, one like looked aesthetically interesting to me, but also um, what might be interesting to other people as well based on my general knowledge of history. Having that background with textiles, how did that not only help you approach lace, but how did it sort of shift your understanding of textiles once you became, once you started working on this project? Yeah, I mean, when, when I started reading the texts about lace and lace history, a lot of it was, all right, well, there's two types of lace. Lace started, you know, in Europe in this like 15th, 16th century. Um, there's two kinds, there's needle lace, there's bobbin lace. They've got sort of different origins. And so like when in that workshop, we were working on bobbin lace, but there's also needle lace. So that those sorts of, for me, I think because I have this background as a maker, my way in is often, how is it made? Like, how do I understand it technically? How do I look at it and see the structure? And this first section of the exhibition, I think, tried to turn that around for other people. Like, how do I understand it? What is it? And how do I look at it? And approaching this from a maker's standpoint, when I think of lace, I have a background in watching it being made. I used to live in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And there were these women who would get together and they would have these lace, work lace workshops and they would just sit and talk. It was almost like they weren't even looking at what they were doing, which mm -hmm. I can never understand, mm -hmm. not even with knitting. And it was the sound of the clickety-clack of the bobbins and then the conversations, and there may have been two or three different languages. And for me, it was always almost like magic, like mm -hmm. they could wave their hands over these bits <laughs> of thread and suddenly something amazing would appear. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not true. Yeah. So talk to me about that process. How are the different types of needle and then bobbin lace made? Yeah, so bobbin lace is like a form of off-loom weaving. Um, it has multiple threads, and each of those threads is attached to a bobbin, and those are moved back and forth in, in basically a weaving process. Needle lace is sort of like, <laughs> like off-cloth embroidery in a way. So it is a single thread on a needle that's stitched and embroidered on top of itself. So this is an example of an unfinished collar. It's on a pink leather ground. And you can see on the, um, the left-hand side, there's like a thread outline. And then over on the right, there's like this more intri intricate like flat pattern and a number of different patterns. So that thread outline is like is called couched, so it's stitched into the leather to hold it down and make a shape. And then as thread is embroidered like between that outline to create these different patterns. And that is sort of similar to the to the bobbin weaving, but in a 
uh, sorry, bobbin lace making, but um, like you can create the same sorts of effects, but it's with a single thread and it's through the series of stitches and knots. It looks like to me, on a very simplistic scale, coloring with thread. Like you have a coloring, like you have a pattern and then you yeah. just color it in yeah, with the thread. You're, you're filling in an outline essentially, yeah. And then there's another way of doing it where you're sort of like you work with a whole cloth that's already woven and then you pull it apart to create spaces and that's sort of what these things are demonstrating. So this here is sort of, it's a whole cloth cut out and then you see this embroidery stitch around the edge. So if you kind of connect the dots between those two things, it's, that's some of it. That's a form of op cut work or open work. And then these, this and this are both, this is a whole cloth, but you can see these, these little tiny embroidery stitches that work within the existing warp and weft and pull it apart to create space. So in some ways it's, it can be both filling in, but it can also be pulling apart and reshaping or it can be constructed on its own, separate from any other existing cloth. And so it seems to me that in some sense, negative space is just as important mm -hmm. as the actual image itself. Absolutely, and I think that's sort of what we, and by we, I guess I settled on. <laughs> <laughs> settled on as a definition of lace, that, that lace is an open work. It's an ornamental open work where the negative space is formative and what unites all of these different types of techniques of lace making is the is the ornamentation around open space around negative space one of the things i noticed in walking around the exhibit and looking at things is that while you may not know or we may not know the maker we know the region what are the markers that tell you which region that it's from or, or, where, the, or the, where the lace was made? Yeah, and unfortunately, this is one area where like my knowledge isn't super developed. And that's why this, this section over here, I kind of called it close looking and connoisseurship because it's, it's a lot about developing this deep knowledge of these things. Like, and where I relied a lot on other experts and just in, in some cases, like pulled things out as close as I could. Like some things we know are there are sort of a couple of very specific centers of lace making. Italy is one, Spain is one, France and Brussels is another, um, and then later on England also kind of becomes its own, uh, England and then Ireland become their own centers. So there are different ways of like that, that regional styles developed and then in like 15th, 16th, 17th century because lace was such like a a rarefied commodity and a real luxury good it was often the sort of purview of a royal court and so there were commissions there were particular styles that they wanted for court dress or that they demanded um, other <laughs> aristocrats wear in like at court in their presence and so there's a very specific market and a very specific like set of designs sent out to peace workers who would then work in that style or in some cases, um, this example, this little piece is an example where King Louis imported Venetian lace workers to a particular region of France to make the type of lace that he wanted. And so then this very particular regional style developed that's influenced by Italian lace making, but is very definitely for the French court and then evolves with French fashion. So 
these regional styles and like trade connections within particular places um, is definitely a part of the history of lace making in Europe. I'm interested in the condition of the maker because I think to some extent, well, I know that I've been trained to think of such fine work in terms of Victorian era, when, when young women were trained to do these things in order to make them more appeasing, suitable, mm -hmm. suitable, <laughs> suitable for marriage. Can I say that without <laughs> sweating a little bit and feeling upset? Was that sort of the history of lace or does it, what is the history of lace? Is it, is it at all related to that? Um, for the most part, the history of lace making, the people making the lace are not the people wearing the lace. Um, lace is made by relatively poor women in their homes as a cottage industry and then sold to merchants who then bring it to cities who then either sell it to courts or to like fine fashion houses. So actually there's one type of lace where it had a particular color and I think it's a needle lace but it was colored that way because it required a lot of handling and so it's like actually colored by like the dirt and sweat but it, it's like a very distinct style of a very particular moment. I wish I could remember the name of it right now, but I was sort of fascinated by that as an example of like how we think about the marks of labor in lace. Um, I'm always fascinated. <laughs> I always like that aspect of seeing the hand of the maker. It makes it more accessible that way. Yeah, and, and it's, it's something that can be really difficult to see in lace. And so, like as much as it's like, we can say like, it's so fine, it's so beautiful and intricate that like, of course the hand of the maker is in there, but it's also like really removed because it's so far, like because it is so fine that it's almost impossible to imagine the hand of the late maker in there. And then we have this sort of three pieces we borrowed from the, the Chazen. Um, and these, these are relatively late. So these are, were made, um, these are insets made in the 1920s. We know the name of the designer. Dagbert Pesch. Um, they were designed for the Wiener Werkstatt in Austria, which is like a, a high-end design house and selling like avant-garde design. Um, but these were still these were made in a really traditional like piecework way by lace makers in Czechoslovakia for the Austrian market. And these are three pieces of the same pattern, and you can see there's like slight variation in all of them. So they're, 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 but they're part of like a, not factory production, but they're part of like an, a, a repetitive production. These are multiples and made, at, made and designed as multiples, but we see a little bit of variance in each of them. Maybe they're made by different makers. Maybe they're made by the same maker. I can't tell. <laughs> right, and how, and how could you? And it just seems to me that... <clears throat> If it was made in a cottage industry, if, if this is how women were making money, mm -hmm. that it, these three panels that have ended up in this gallery that have come from a museum mm -hmm. could have just been, all right, ma'am, <laughs> you've got X number of pieces to finish. This, mm -hmm. These are just, this is a stack of patterns. Yep. And away you go. Yeah. Like how much ownership or how much, I don't want to say bragging rights, but there's a certain... I will. There's a certain <laughs> amount of pride that comes from seeing your work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Were they allowed to have that moment of pride? Were they allowed to see the things they've worked on yeah. outside of maybe community festivals, if they're garments for festivals or 
decorative object that they gave to someone if they had free time mm -hmm. to do this kind of work. This piece was actually made by an Oneida woman um, who did piecework lace making as a living, as an income, but the family retained very, very few pieces of the lace work because it was for sale. So it didn't stay around much, but the family has a couple very few pieces of lace work, and this is one of them, which um, they very graciously allowed us to borrow for the show. So I think for the most part, if someone was a piecework maker, no, they didn't come into contact. They might have made lace for themselves on their own and then kept and maintained that because I think that a lot of lace does make it into like regional dress. And so there are areas of, the, of Europe where lace making is both a cottage industry but also is accessible. I'm sure that there are also scholars who like work really deeply in that and, and know much more about the lace industry than I do. Because I think this exhibition in a lot of cases focused on like what we have here in this collection and also how to make it accessible for our audience, which includes community members who might be interested in textiles and lace, which includes students of design and design history um, and other students within the university. So probably it would require like a case study in one specific regional industry. And I know that there are people out there doing that kind of work about very specific regional styles and the regional like market and exchange in a particular moment also, because we're also talking about centuries of lace making and these things might've been different over the centuries as lace making becomes like part of a tourist industry in a place. Um, because they're known for lace production as opposed to when it was an integral part of the economy on its own. So it's a very complicated story and it's so difficult to pinpoint because you can't just say, yes, this is true across time and space. It's gonna be different based on region, based on moments of time and the individuals making and keeping or not keeping their lace. <laughs> Welcome to the world of material culture. Exactly. <laughs> good, good objects always inspire more questions. Yeah. It's, it's, really, it's really confusing. <laughs> For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Special thanks to feature contributor Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered tonight's show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Stay up to date with the WORT's local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you subscribe. Um, before we go for today, we'd like to bid a fond farewell to producer Jonah Chester, who is headed to a reporting position at the Public News Service, whose stories we frequently hear right here on WORT Local News. Jonah came on board at WORT in spring 2020, right as the pandemic loomed, and WORT was about to shut down to volunteers. In the last 19 months, Jonah has reported on a surging pandemic, a summer of racial justice protests, a consequential election, everything ranging from neighborhood news to monumental policing changes to goat grazing. 
Congratulations, Jonah, and good luck on your new job. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.